All right, good evening, folks. Uh, our topic for tonight, a double topic, we'll discuss the Damascus blood libel and the Edgar Martara affair of 1840 and 1858, respectively. And the reason why I want to discuss those two topics in the same night, we could do you know each one its own night, but I want to lump them together because in the history of anti-Semitism, these two episodes bring us to a modern period in the sense that the reaction of the Jewish people to an unfortunate episode was to rally around the flag of, Jew, of, the, of Am Yisrael in a way which was basically impossible in the pre-modern time. And that the idea of Jewish advocacy, international Jewry, not in some sinister sense of the protocols of the others of Zion, but like real international Jewish advocacy on behalf of our beleaguered brethren in various parts of the world in response to an, an outburst of anti-Semitism, that comes about in the 19th century, these two episodes being the most famous. Okay, so we'll start with Damascus blood libel. Sultan Abul Masid I, a name you don't need to remember, of the Ottoman Empire, was not in control of Damascus in 1840. Uh, the real power broker at that time in Damascus was in the hands of Muhammad Ali, not Cassius Clay, but the original Muhammad Ali, uh, who was governing from Egypt, the Egyptian. He broke away from the sultan and had his little fiefdom in the so- southern lands of the Ottoman realm. His son-in-law, Sharif Pasha, was the local governor at Damascus. Now, bad relations obtained between Jews and Christians in Syria over economic matters. Both were dimmies in an Islamic society, but there was some freedom of economic activity, and the merchants of various religious sects were competing against each other. Father Thomas, the man who supposedly was killed and whom the Jews were accused of killing, was a Franciscan Capuchin friar from the island of Sardinia. Him and his Muslim servant, Ibrahim Amra, disappeared on February 5th, 1840. What happened to them? We don't really know. Father Thomas practiced medicine and was known to be in the Jewish and Muslim quarters on business calls. The previous day, he had a dispute with a Turkish Muslim who heard Thomas supposedly blaspheme the Prophet Muhammad. Now, what happens when you blaspheme the Prophet Muhammad in an Islamic country? It's curtains for you. So the Turks supposedly said, that dog of a Christian shall die by my hand. And the next day he was gone. So you could figure out what happened probably. Now, the blood libel accusation that the Jews, or a Jew, or a cabal of Jews, was guilty of killing this guy uh, for the purposes of using blood for matzah baking, this was started by the French consul in Damascus, Ulysse de Rati Menton, who was a known anti-Semite and was all too eager to come up with this, this sort of theory, a medieval-style blood libel, that Father Thomas had been killed for the matzah. Well, he published the libel in both French and Arabic, and he encouraged Sharif Pasha, the local governor, to investigate the situation and to find the culprits or the supposed culprits. Well, uh, Sharif Pasha went along because there was good relations between Louis Philippe of France and Muhammad Ali of Egypt. So if the government of France and the government of Egypt are on cozy terms with each other and the local consul says, oh, let's investigate the death of a Christian priest. Uh, Maybe the Jews did it. All right. So the local governor goes along for the ride. Who was arrested? So a bunch of Jews were arrested. The first one was a barber named Negrin. Also Joseph Lanado, Moses Abulafia, Yaakov Farhi, and a few others. They were tortured. The torture was pretty rough. Their beards were pulled out. Their teeth were pulled out. Some of them had their bodies burned. Some of them were tempted with gold to do what? Either confess or convert to another religion. So Lanado, who was an older man, died in custody. It's possible that several Jews died in custody. We're not entirely clear. Remember, this happened in 1840 in Ottoman lands where the, the information was not always so accurate coming out. But at least... Well, the story, they could figure it out. 
That's a good question. I'm not sure where the, uh, the information about the interaction with the Turkish fellow came from. It's in all the recorded histories of the, the affair, but I, I'm not sure what the primary source was. Now, one guy or multiple guys possibly died in custody. One of them, Abu Lafia, converted to Islam, because if you do that, they'll stop torturing you. When bones were found in the Jewish quarter, this led to more arrests. Now, who those bones? Who those, those bones belong to? It could be anybody. You know, Thomas Owell. You know, it could be Thomas Mace. But it doesn't have to be to Father Thomas. Sharif wanted permission from Muhammad Ali to execute the prisoners on the basis of coerced confessions, and he was going to get that permission had there not been some kind of an intervention. Popular uh, displeasure with the Jews over having supposedly killed Father Thomas led to a riot, and in the suburb of, of Damascus of Jobar. The synagogue was uh, ransacked, and the Sifrei Torah were destroyed. So how does the Western world, the emancipated world, find out about what's going on in Damascus? The answer is that the Austrian consul, Eliyahu Picado, uh, who was a Jew, told the world what was going on, sending messages, messages back home. The Jews rallied in various major cities, in Paris, in London, in New York, and Philadelphia. And there was a meeting with the Lord Mayor of London on July 3rd, 1840. So prominent politicians are aware of what's going on and are not happy with what's going on. Well, how do we resolve the problem? You send the heavy hitters. Who's the heaviest hitter in the Jewish world in 1840? Rothschild or Montefiore? Montefiore. So we learned about Montefiore a couple of years ago in the biography course. And one of the, the great things that he did in the course of his career was to go to the Middle East and to plead the case of these Jews of Damascus. So the mission included Moses Montefiore, who was the president of the Board of Deputies of British Jews, and Adolf Cremieu, who was a prominent French Jewish attorney, would go on to become the Minister of Justice in one of the French governments, and Solomon Monk from the famous rabbinical monk family. They went to Alexandria to negotiate with Muhammad Ali. The, te- the talks lasted from August 4th to August 28th. That's long negotiations. But when it was over, there were good things. The nine surviving prisoners of 13 who had been orig- originally arrested were released. However, they were not officially acquitted. They were released, but not acquitted. The delegation then went to Constantinople to talk to the sultan. And he issued a firman, which is a Turkish decree, denouncing the blood libel. So just like the Pope had occasionally denounced the blood libel when people under his auspices were getting a little too rambunctious, so to the sultan do the same thing. What did he say? And for the love we bear to our subjects, we cannot permit the Jewish nation, whose innocence for the crime alleged against them is evident, to be worried and tormented as a consequence of accusations which have not the least foundation in truth. That's very nice. You know, they're good. That he said this is totally bogus and the Jews shouldn't have to suffer and be worried all the time that we're going to kill them on the basis of these accusations. So the Damascus affair led in part eventually to the establishment of the Alliance Israelite Universelle. We're going to see after the Mortara case, that's really when it was, was established in 1860. But the idea of sending high-level Jewish diplomats who don't have uh, official government position, their only position is that they're prominent Jews from emancipated countries and they have a lot of kesef behind them, going to speak to governments in the, in the Near East, uh, this was unprecedented. But yet it worked. It worked. Now, in America, the Jews were very much... Uh, saddened by what happened in Damascus, and they want to exert some pressure on their own government to do something that whatever influence the U.S. government has abroad, apply some pressure. Maybe good things will happen. So there was a meeting of Jews in New York on August 24th, 1840, and they wrote a letter to President Martin Van Buren, not a name you typically hear in American Jewish history course, but uh, good old Marty Van Buren, quote, uniting in an expression of sympathy for their brethren in Damascus, taking steps necessary to procure for them equal justice. The call was for an impartial and fair trial, meaning 
There's an accusation. We're not calling for the Jews to be released, you know, just like that, but rather let them have a trial, but let it be a fair trial. And if they're innocent, let them go. And that the U.S. consuls should remonstrate to the Pasha for righteousness to prevail. The Jews tell Van Buren that they know he will use every possible effort to induce the Pasha to manifest more liberal treatment of his Jewish subjects. So, you know, they're hoping for the best out of Van Buren. Not that they really are convinced that anything good is going to happen from it, but it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to say it. It's the right thing for Van Buren to do something about it. Good. So the Jews uh, write to Van Buren. This is a very interesting quote. Not so much about the, the Damascus case in particular, but about the, the kinds of attitudes that American Jews had in 1840 about their own circumstances. Quote, the liberal and enlightened views of our government from its very inception to the present time have secured the sincere gratitude and kind regard of the members of all religious denominations. Meaning, we have freedom of religion here, and everybody loves it. So it's great. And we trust the efforts of your excellency in this behalf will only serve to render more grateful and to impress more fully on the minds of the citizens of the United States the kindness and liberality of that government under which we live. Meaning, we love it here. It's great. Everybody knows it's great. But if you do the right thing in international affairs, foreign affairs, pursuing uh, the cause of, of, of human dignity and decency abroad, we'll, we'll know even more how wonderful America is. Okay. Was there any backlash from the Christians about Father Thomas dying, or is it just Muslim Jews? Uh, so, for the most part, it's Christian versus Jew, and there's a large Christian population in Syria just like there was a large Christian population in Eretz Israel, And in those parts of the Middle East, the blood libel would take on and be repeated several, several more times in the 19th century. The Muslims really couldn't care less. I mean, they have antipathy towards everybody anyway. But the specific issue of a European-style blood libel is Christian versus Jew. Okay. Now, the Secretary of State... So the Muslims know Jews don't eat blood, which is why this charge is not likely to be accepted at face value by the educated Muslim of the 19th century. They might dislike Jews, but they'll know this is baloney. Okay. Secretary of State John Forsyth responded on behalf of the president, telling the Jews that even before the government received their letter, the U.S. government um, had already issued uh, instructions to its consuls in Alexandria and Constantinople to employ their good offices to help innocent people. So basically, the response is, yeah, you sent us a letter. Even before we got your letter, we were already doing the right thing. Okay. What, what did John Forsyth, the Secretary of State, send to John Glidden, who was the U.S. Consul at Alexandria? Quote, in common with all civilized nations, the people of the United States have learned with horror the atrocious crimes imputed to the Jews of Damascus and the cruelties of which they have been the victims. The president cannot refrain from expressing surprise and pain that in this advanced age, such unnatural practices should be ascribed to any portion of the religious world, and such barbarous measures be resorted to to compel confession of imputed guilt. The offenses charged resemble too much those which in less enlightened times were made the pretext of fanatical persecution or mercenary extortion, to permit a doubt that they are equally unfounded. A great quote. Two, two important things in this quote. One, how could it be that in 1840, the modern times of 1840, people still believe such nonsense? Now, we tend to think of uh, 2022, or when I was a kid, you know, it's 1985. How could you still think so, like, backward, you know? But in 1840, that's the way they felt. These are modern times. It's 1840. It's not 1240 or 1340. How could anybody believe this rubbish anymore? Um, but also, the Secretary of State is saying, listen, this accusation of the blood, blood libel for matzah purposes, Pesach, they were making this up 500 years ago just to extort the Jews and kill them for, for, for the fun of it. It's the same exact accusation. It's too, it resembles it to the past too much for us to take this seriously. Just as that was a shtus, was a lie for the sake of grabbing the Jews' wallet, so too this is a lie for the sake of grabbing the Jews' wallet. Okay. So the Jews were very appreciative of what had been done on their behalf by Van Buren and the U.S. government. So they wrote a letter of thanks to Van Buren, dated uh, September 4th, 1840. Well, there were no Republicans back then. So, so, quote, which assures to us his sympathy in whatever may hereafter be attempted or done toward extending the, to the ancient race of Israel, wherever dispersed, 
the civil and religious privileges secured to us by the constitution of this favored land. Meaning, they're saying, listen, Van Buren, you did a great job, Yeshikoyach. And now that you did this, we know that whenever we need to call on you to try to extend the rights we have here to Jews over there, we know we can count on you and you'll do it. Now, this is fascinating because there is no real basis to assume that the rights enjoyed by Jews in the United States would necessarily be extended to them in other faraway countries in the backward parts of the world in the later part of the 19th century. It's maybe a pious hope that the world would be a better place, kumbaya, but I mean, realistically, it wasn't really going to happen everywhere. But yet in a letter to the American president, they say, well, I know you'll do this to extend it everywhere. This is the boundless hope in the wonders of America. America can do anything. In certain respects, yes, but not necessarily on a matter like this, where it's a contained issue. The, the, the U.S. government doesn't have much of a beef with the, the Ottoman Empire, for better or for worse. So if they want to cry foul that something is going wrong, they can do so without much damage. Yeah. No, not at all. That's true. They were a young country. The the, the Americans did not have the kind of international clout they would have in the 20th century. Okay. Modern anti-Semitism first made it to the Middle East among Syrian Christians. Question is, how do these ideas make it to the Middle East? I mean, they're really born in France and in Germany and England 600 years earlier. What are they doing in, in Syria in the 1840s? So the answer is, Syrian Christians are the, the conduit for the bringing of European ideas, bad European ideas, to the Middle East. Why them, of, of all peoples? Because they shared traditional contempt for Jews with their fellow Muslim Arabs. But they also observed Europe, absorbed European ideas of anti-Semitism from French traders and missionaries. So the worst of European thought comes to them from the ecclesiastics and from the, from the mercantilists who were making money. The Eastern churches long held that Jews were deicides and cursed by God. However, they did not have in their store of tricks European notions of desecration of the host or blood libel. So there's the, European, the, the Eastern Orthodox churches didn't like Jews, but they didn't like them for classic theological reasons, not for the Stussen of 12th century Germany and France. But somebody eventually brings over those ideas and they can readily adopt them. Okay, the classic libel of Jews killing Christians uh, for matzah purposes, first appeared in the Islamic world in Aleppo in the 17th century, but did not achieve wide circulation until the Damascus episode of 1840. 63 Jewish children were taken hostage during the Damascus affair as the Pasha tried to pressure Jewish parents into revealing the, where the, the, the corpse was hidden. So this is a little known fact of the, the Damascus affair. People, people tend to focus on the adults who were, who were arrested and, and tortured and had their beards pulled out and a few of them died. But the children were kidnapped because the Pasha really thought he was going to get the evidence, get the goods on them. The blood became, uh, blood level became popular in Palestine, Syria, and Egypt in the 19th century, as I said, where there were large Christian populations. It's an Islamic world, but it's not fully Muslim. There's plenty of Christians. Again in 1847, in Lebanon and in Jerusalem, though this time Muhammad Ali prevented violence because he didn't want to see an outburst that could risk his own, his own rule. There was violence associated with blood libels in Egypt repeatedly between 1870 and 1892. And another blood, blood libel happened in Damascus in 1890. That was the year that Habib Faris published Talmudic Human Sacrifices. So in a year when a book came out that said that the, the, the Jews, the rabbis, go for this human sacrifice, there was another accusation and, you know, some violence in the streets. Okay. Seder night, yeah, yeah. So now, it was a lot to be a lot to be worried about. Yes, absolutely. Opening the door in the Seder was no was no simple thing. The Jews in the Ottoman lands had to worry about libels coming from French and Greek consuls. They could rely for help on the Sultan, at least in this case, and from the consulates of the British, the Prussians, and the Austrians. So some European countries good. Some European countries bad on the specific issue of blood libel. 
The Damascus affair led to the growth of the Jewish periodic, periodical press in London and in Paris. We take this for granted today, although in the era of the internet, most newspapers are going out of business, but the Jewish Orthodox ones that still exist because of Shabbos, you can't read the internet on Shabbos, you have to have printed paper, okay? So, but where does all this come from? Jewish newspapers emerge starting in the 1830s with the, uh, with the, with the Zeitung uh, in Germany, but then in, in Paris and in London in the 1840s and in America in the 1840s with the Isaac Leesers, uh, the Occident, and then Abraham, Isaac Mayer Wise's American Israelite 10 years later. So Jews in advanced European capitals wanted up-to-date information about the goings-on in Jewish communities around the world, especially when there's persecution and there is a need for a swift defense action, meaning you got to act fast. Of course, this was facilitated by what invention in the 1840s? Telegraph. Telegraph, right. So in 1840, there's still no way to, to get the news quickly. 1844 or uh, telegraph, and it was widely available pretty quickly in, in Western Europe, in the Middle East, not so quickly, but we want to have information, we want it right away in case somebody's in danger. No, but you could get a message the same day. Okay, so at stake in Damascus was the image of worldwide jewelry. Questions seemingly settled in the Emancipation Era were being reopened. In other words, in the Emancipation Era, let's say put 1790 through the 1830s in Western Europe, the the worst medieval accusations were discarded as being irrelevant because they're not true. Other accusations, more modern style accusations, which we've discussed over the recent weeks, still had to be addressed and, and decided upon. But old questions had been put aside. With a blood libel re-emerging, even the old medieval-style questions are back in, in, in play. Jonathan Frankel, the professor, wrote a book titled The Damascus Affair, Ritual Murder, Politics, and the Jews of 1840. The book places the affair in the context of the history of Jewish politics, European diplomacy, and the Middle East conflict. He regarded this incident as a major milestone in the development of Jewish politics in the 19th century, and I tend to agree with him that Jewish politics don't really exist much. There's classical Stadlanut before that in the 18th century, but in the 19th century, we finally have real politics. So Eli's asking, is this the beginning of Jewish organizations? Yes. I mean, there was always the, the Vad Arba Arzot and the old Kehillah in pre-modern times, but now we're going to get voluntary organizations um, being formed for the purposes of Jewish defense. Yeah. Right. Ashkenazim coming to the aid of Sephardim. Uh, It's unusual because of the geographic distance between the two communities. And I mean, they're they're far apart in space and in time, basically. Uh, But now it's all coming together in in, in modernity. In previous weeks, we talked about how the Jews are going to go ahead and they have their own Use the word cabal. Yeah. To influence things. So almost like a lobbying. Yes. Did this generate the same type of criticism? No. So criticism of the Jews for defending their co-religionists in Damascus was basically non-existent. It was understood that this was a reasonable thing to do. And in the Mortara case, we're going to see shortly, there is some backlash against Jews advocating for their brethren But for the most part, the Western world understood this was an appropriate thing to do. Eventually, we will come to a point in time when Jewish defense organizations are seen by uh, the general population or by government officials as overreaching. But we're not there yet. That's going to be in the early 20th century. Uh, And even then, only by government officials who are themselves basically hostile to Jews anyway and don't want to see Jewish defense organizations act in, you know, and achieve their goals. Okay, so one of the key things that we have to understand about the Damascus case is that it was not not the backward Middle Eastern states that were pursuing this accusation. It was the European consular corps that drove the blood libel charge. The French, French consul and other European Christians who were doing this and insisting upon it and adding fuel to the fire It may happen in a backward Middle Eastern state, 
But but the authorities in that state are not the ones who really want this to to move forward. And the root was not a religious anti-Semitism. Uh, well, you could argue that it was on the part of some of the Frenchmen. I mean, it, it may have been uh, economic in nature by the locals. They're happy to see the Jews bludgeoned. But there's a religious anti-Semitism at the start of it from you know Europeans coming to from, from the outside. Now, in places where the absolute monarchy ruled, like the Habsburg Empire or Tsarist Russia, this affair of Damascus gained almost no traction. But where, by contrast, where the Jews had rights, like France, the press ran the story. So the Jews were stripped of the protection offered by state censorship and could easily fall victim to the scandal-seeking press and to demagogic politicians outbidding each other for electoral advantage. Basically, where the, where the boss is the boss and he controls the media, so if they want to bury the story, they'll bury the story. But where the boss doesn't control the media, there's a free press. So all sorts of horrible things will make it into the press, including things that are disparaging of Jews. And the government's not going to stop it. It then becomes up to the Jewish community to push back and say, these are lies. These are not, these are not true. So in France, England, and Germany, the state offers no, no help in the propaganda department. Jews have to fight their uncensored opponents on their own. The government may send emissaries to, to the Middle East, say, you know, hey, Pasha, be nice to the Jews. They're really innocent. But in the, in the public debate, the government's not involved. Okay. The old historiography saw Damascus as a triumph of Western civilization. Why? Because the prisoners were released. You know, the good guys won. Montefiore comes in and saves the day. But Frankel sees the blood libel of the 19th century as a continuation of the 13th century. And he draws a connection between medieval anti-Judaism and modern anti-Semitism. Some of the critics of his book say he overstated the case and that really there are a lot of discontinuities. But that was his spiel, that this is not a, a, a new thing. This is a continuation of an old thing. Few believed the Damascus charges in the United States or in England, meaning we didn't, uh, the people here in America, the Go, even the Goyim, didn't think it was true. But the blood, the blood libel reemerged in the 19th century only in particular places, entering mainstream political discourse only where social and economic factors made it a useful tool. So where it was useful to accuse the Jews of killing a goy for a matzah, you would make the charge. Which means then that even among those who are saying it, there's not a lot of sincere belief. It's mostly a lot of bluster for the sake of some political advantage. But they get away with using it. Correct, 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 correct. Okay, now that took us about a half hour. Now let's go to Mortara. Mortara case is actually a lot juicier uh, and in many ways uh, more sad because of the peculiar way that it ends. Okay, so Pope Pius IX was the Pope from 1846 to 1878. At first, early in his papacy, he took some liberal measures in favor of the Jews. One, Jews were no longer forced to listen to sermons four times a year in a church. That had long been a standing policy in the papal states that the Jew had to listen to a Galah give a speech a few times a year to try to convert them to Christianity. Uh, I don't know. The, the, the Galah went, you know, we, we, we knocked on the door. So also. That went back to TV public Christianity? Yeah, sure. It, it went a, a long, long back. Now, also, Pius tore down the ghetto walls, physically tore them down. Uh, and the ghettoization of Jewry. Ended and Jews could live, you know, beyond their own quarters. However, after he was exiled in 1848 and returned from exile in 1850, he reinstated the ghetto and was not exactly the best friend of the Jews. So we get to Edgardo Mortara. Edgardo Levi Mortara was the son of Solomon or Mamolo and Mariana Mortara. He was born August 27, 1851. He lived in Bologna, which was at that time in the northern reaches of the Papal States. How many Jews lived in Bologna? 200 Jews uh, lived there discreetly. There was no rabbi. There was no shul. They had recently moved back. There had been an expulsion order in the 1500s, and they came back recently, but quietly. Jews were officially not allowed to have Christian servants. However, they almost all did. Why? Shabbos goy. So the, uh, the Christian authorities tended to look the other way. Now, the, little, the, the, the young girls needed Parnassa. The Jews provided employment. So they'll turn a blind eye. The Mortara family servant 
when uh, Edgardo was born in 1851, was an 18-year-old illiterate girl named Anna or Nina Morisi. Moetaro is a Jewish family, and Morisi is the shiksa who, le- who works for the family. She got pregnant in 1855 uh, while unmarried, and the family was nice to her and took care of her during the pregnancy, and then they sent the baby off to an orphanage, which was the style, style of the time. She got married and left in 1857. But in 1858, all hell breaks loose on the basis of something she claimed she did many years earlier, in 1852. So the inquisitor, Dominican friar Gaetano Faletti, heard a rumor that in Bologna there was a secret baptism, that one of the, uh, the girls working in the homes of the Jews had baptized a child, but hadn't told anybody about it or had been relatively quiet about it. The story was, at least the, the church policy, was that parental consent was needed for any baptism, um, except in cases of near death. Why, in that, why was an exception made for, for near death? Because saving souls has priority, okay, in an emergency. That we, we have to have parental consent because you don't want to have society torn apart, that everybody grabbing somebody else's kid, that's not going to work. But if we see someone is on the verge of death, we don't want their soul damned to perdition forever. So sprinkle a little water, make hocus pocus, and it counts as a baptism. Parents were afraid that their servants would do this to their kid and then uh, admit to it much later and run the risk the kid is going to be grabbed by the church. So it was the style of the time that when the, the girl, uh, 19, 20, 21 years old, would leave the family's employment, usually to get married, they would make her sign a notarized statement saying, I never baptized your kids. This way she couldn't later say that she did baptize the kids. Okay, but a notarized statement is a notarized statement. Okay, now. Uh, Faletti interrogated Morisi. She said that she did it when Edgardo was very sick. She sprinkled the water and said, quote, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And that the magic words, and the kid is a going. So she, she can't read and write, but she could do that. Folletti kept his transcript secret and requested permission from the Holy Office to remove Edgardo Mortara from his family. The Holy Office is down in Rome, and the, the head of it is the pontiff himself, the Pope. So the Holy Office gave permission for the removal of the child on the basis of the 1747 papal bull that had established the rule that coerced conversions are generally speaking bad and parental consent is required for conversion of children, but that a a conversion done of a child in an emergency is valid and there's no turning back. So in this instance, assuming Maurice's statement was was accurate, then according to the church doctrine, the child must receive a, a Christian education and cannot be allowed to remain in the home of a Jewish family. So Edgardo was going to be taken to the house of the catechumens in Rome. Well, no, no, no. So the papal military police went to the Mortara home on the night of June 23rd, 1858. So it wasn't Shavuos, after Shavuos. Uh, Marshal Lucidi expressed sadness that he had to take the child. So here the police are coming to the house and they feel terrible that we're going to grab your kid. We don't want to do this, but, you know, we're doing our job. This is our orders to take your kid. The kid is now seven years old, seven years old, or almost, he was just short of seven. He was still six, actually. More, so the mother screamed and basically said over my dead body. The mother was going bonkers. The family asked for a one-day reprieve to try to figure something out. It was granted on one condition. They don't take the boy away. That we'll be back tomorrow, do what you got to do for 24 hours, but don't run away. They appealed to Faletti, the inquisitor, but to no avail. It was decided that most family members would not be home when the removal would take place because they didn't, they knew it was a fait accompli, it was a foregone conclusion, and they didn't want to have a big scene and everyone to cry. So uh, the, the, the siblings all were elsewhere. And the mother was elsewhere. She made a tearful goodbye beforehand, and she didn't want to be around for the removal. 
a promise was, was made to Mamolo, the father, that Edgardo would be well cared for and under the personal protection of the Pope. The personal protection of the Pope. The removal was at 8 p.m., the police cried, and the father fainted. Okay. The Mortara family and Bologna Jewry appealed to emancipated Western Jewry for help. So that's the overlap with the Damascus case, that here a crisis is happening in a backward part of the world. In one instance, it's the Ottoman Middle East. In the other case, it's the unemancipated papal states of the Italian peninsula. And we're going to turn to the heavy hitters of Western Jewry, save us from our moment of crisis. Freedom of the press helped give the story wider circulation than any previous case had had. The papal government wanted to ignore the appeals that were coming in from the Western world, but their reputation for tyranny was hurting their international standing. Why does it matter that their reputation would be hurt? Why, does it, why, why, would, why would the Pope care about that? Well, money is not the issue. Series of states. Okay, good. That's the issue. The issue is he's a temporal leader of a country, of a, of a papal states, and he doesn't really have an army. He's relying upon the military power of various Catholic regimes in Central and Western Europe to prop him up. And if he's guilty of tyranny or of something that's out of step with mid 19th century European values, it says you can't kidnap a kid, well, then those countries that are propping him up will drop their support. And then what happens? He can be overrun. He can be overrun, which ultimately happens. Not right then and there, but eventually, and all he's left with is the Vatican, the, the Holy See. century, they had an army. Had an army. Right, so they don't have one anymore. No, they're relying upon the French, and to a lesser extent, the Austrians. So, um, so what happens next? The, uh, the Secretary of State, Giacomo Antonelli, agreed to allow uh, Gardo's father to, to visit the boy several times. Usually, you were only allowed one visit, like one phone call from prison. So one visit with your kid who's taken away. This was a special case because it had international outcry. You get a few visits. The family tried to figure out which servant had baptized Edgardo. They used a ruse, and it worked. They tricked a friend of, of Nina Morisi to admit that it was her, that Morisi had admitted to this friend, oh, yeah, I baptized the Matara kid. The family confronted Morisi. She tearfully admitted what happened and how the truth had slipped out in connection with the death of Edgardo's younger brother, meaning what happened was... Edgardo Mortara had a younger brother who died in, in infancy, and the Maurici girl was, was the nanny at that time, and she was saying, like, what was me? I feel bad. This kid is dying in the crib. You know, I wish there was something I could do. And someone said, well, you could baptize the kid. And she says, oh, Taka, you're right. I did that once before. Uh, and that's how it got out, or that's how, that's how she claims it got out. Okay. The family, having heard her story, wanted it notarized and put in the official record, but she ran away before they could get a notary. Okay, two versions of the story emerged. And this is a common theme throughout the Mortara case. Two versions of the story, the Jewish version and the church's version. The family claimed that Edgardo was miserable and wanted to return to his Jewish family. The church claimed that Edgardo was a spiritual giant and was distraught that his family wouldn't become the Shumadim and join the church. Okay, who's right? It's hard to know, hard to know. After the removal, Mariana, the mother, was insane and near death, or so they claimed to elicit sympathy from the wider world. It could be she was perfectly fine. I mean, of course, she was terribly upset that her ch child was taken away, but they may have exaggerated the extent of her mental, mental illness or mental breakdown in order to get uh, you know more of an outcry. The church story was that Edgardo miraculously memorized the entire catechism in a few weeks. He knew Shas, the, the, the Goyesha version of Shas, within a month. That, that was what they said about this kid. And he's quoted as saying, I am baptized, and my father is the Pope. Can you imagine the real father hearing that? My daddy is the Pope? Oh, he would kill him. This chapter, was he kid, some kidnapping? Just a few months, a few months. The story was too good to be true, and Mamolo, the, the real father, didn't believe it. He said, baloney, you're telling me a, a lie. Now, in September, 
the father went back to his hometown. He left Rome, not giving up on the cause, but realizing I got to go back and earn a livelihood for my family. And the Rome Jewish community leaders continued to represent the Mortara family in Rome. There was a new goal. The new goal was to discredit Morisi, the girl, because if she lied and the basis for the, the removal of the child was undermined, then maybe the, the baptism could be said to declared null and void, puzzle, and the kid could go, up, go back to being a Jew. So there were several ways that they tried to discredit her story. One, she was bedridden at the time that Edgardo was sick, so she couldn't have done the baptism the way she claimed she did. Secondly, Edgardo wasn't near death. He was sick, but he wasn't that sick, to, so as to justify by Catholic standards violating the parental consent rule. Thirdly, she lied about learning the baptism procedure from a grocer named Lepori. She claimed that she went to the grocery store and some guy told her, this is how you do a baptism, blah, 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 and she copied his, his instructions. He did not ever speaking to this girl. And lastly, she's puzzled to aid this because she's a thief and a floozy, that she was constantly having uh, illicit sexual relations with Austrian soldiers and getting pregnant by them. So since she's a, a prutza, we shouldn't believe anything she says. Okay. The parents tried to visit Edgardo at Rome on October 11th, 1858. But Mamola was arrested um, for trespassing or something like that. Fearing bad press, the church released him. They realized we can't be that cruel and vindictive. So the parents then had several meetings with their son over the next few weeks. Again, two different versions of what happened, the Jewish version and the Goyish version. The Jewish version was the boy rushed to hug his mother and told her, I recite Shema every night. I say Kriya Shema every night before I go to bed. Uh, and that the family was happy to see their son, but they ran away when the nuns started praying for their conversion. They got all frightened by it and they ran out. The church's version was that the parents were upset because Edgardo was sincerely devout as a Christian. And the mother supposedly said, I'd rather see you dead than a goy. Now, I, don't, I can't imagine that's what she actually said, but that's the church's version of what happened. The Mortara case became a cause celeb around the world. Right. So the, the case became a cause celeb around the world, not only for Jews, but also for Protestants. Why Protestants? Because this is great fodder for promoting an anti-Catholic agenda to say that the Catholics are backward from a thousand years ago, that the Pope is, a, is an evil man, and that Protestantism is the wave of the future. We are you know, moral people. Um, especially in England and the United States, this was the case. That pay it doesn't matter. The point is, in the hierarchy of who's good and who's bad, this looks really bad. We could, we could pummel up the, the, the church on the basis of the Pope's bad behavior. So the papal government was seen as evil and cruel. But Rome Jewry thought that the negative press coverage was actually hurting the Mortara's case. Why? Because it steeled the Pope's resolve not to return the child. By having everyone lambast him the world over, oh, he's terrible, the Pope's response is, you think I'm terrible? That kid is not going anywhere. Yeah? So he, also, the Pope was surprised by the uproar because... Um, he felt, I'm just upholding the doctrine that there's a hundred and some odd year old uh, Catholic doctrine that this conversion was valid. So I can't give the kid back to the Jews. It may be a sorry state of affairs. It's a human interest story. We feel bad about it, but I'm doing what I, as a head of a religion, have to do it within my religion. He, he couldn't fathom why any, anyone was busting his chops over it. You can know where she was. Yeah, sure. Now, uh, uh, Emperor Napoleon III was annoyed. His garrison was keeping the Papal States alive. He decided it was time to change policy and abolish the Pope's temporal rule over uh, central Italy and to unify Italy under the Kingdom of Piedmont. So Rome, Rome's Jewish leaders had an annual meeting with the Pope. Every year, sometime after New Year's, the local Jewish community had, a, had an audience with the Pope. On February 2nd, 1859, it was not a good meeting. He was angry with them. They were angry with him. He accused them of fomenting the bad press. Oh, I read the article in the op-ed piece in the New York Times. It's your fault, guys. You're, you're, you're making me look bad. 
they denied any involvement, and they really were, were not involved. The Pope truly loved Edgardo. He treated him like a son. He played with him, he taught him, in a very close personal relationship with the boy. Then what happens? So the hero of the Damascus case, Moses Montefiore, thinks he can work his magic one more time. And he goes to Rome. And he tries to have an audience with the Pope. He shows up on April 5th, 1859. He was the president of the Board of Deputies of British Jews. But the Pope refused to see him. On April 28th, he finally gets an audience with the Secretary of State, Antonelli. And Montefiore says, I'll wait a week for your response, and then I'm going to go home. But that was a pure, uh, peculiar week, or, uh, not, not the most auspicious week to be in Rome. Because what happened in the beginning of May 1859? War breaks out. War breaks out, and the whole Italian peninsula is in convulsions because the unification is on its way with Garibaldi. So Montefiore goes home, and he gets a big reception when he gets home. There's a petition signed by 2,000 prominent Englishmen, including uh, members of the Church of England, members of Parliament, members of the government, saying that the Pope is terrible, and this is, is a horrible thing, and that the Pope was a dishonor to Christianity and repulsive to humanity. Repulsive to humanity. Okay, it's pretty good language. Well, this is a bunch of Anglicans. Yes, it's a bunch of Anglicans trashing the Catholics. So, Bologna becomes part of Sardinia, the Kingdom of Sardinia, in June of 1859. And the consequence of that are twofold. One, there is now freedom of religion. It's not the papal states anymore. It's a free place, freedom of religion. And secondly, the Inquisition is abolished, abolished. So now there's the possibility to prosecute the offender in civil court, secular law. A child was kidnapped from a family and they want answers. So Folletti, who had been the inquisitor in that district, was arrested for kidnapping on January 2nd, 1860. He refused to talk. His allegiance was to the holy office headed by the Pope. And he says, listen, I was doing my duty. And if you have a problem with me, you really have a problem with the Pope. Folletti was tried in court on the basis of the laws that existed at the time of the removal of the child, meaning this was not based upon secular law that he was tried. He was tried based upon what the law had been under papal rule. Was it a legitimate removal? Was he acting on authority of the Pope or of the Holy Office? Was this a valid conversion on the basis of papal doctrine? So all this was, was tried. It was, it's an example of, in America, we would say separation of church and state, the court can, can't get into the weeds of the halacha. So they, they may call an expert testimony, but in the end, it doesn't matter because it's secular law that matters. Here, no, no, the religious law mattered, but being tried in a secular court. Ultimately, however, Folletti was, was acquitted. He was acquitted. Little uh, press attention was paid to the trial because there was bigger news in, uh, at the, the time uh, of the unification of, uh, of Italy. It's like you know, the trucker convoy getting no coverage because there's a Ukraine crisis. Uh, you know, the, the bigger news story wins out. So Mamolo, the father, went to Paris in May of 1860 for the founding of the Alliance Israelite Universelle. So this is going to be a French Jewish organization that is going to play a major role in the lives of Sephardic Jews all over uh, the Middle East in building schools and hospitals and doing philanthropic work and in protecting Jews from abuses from uh, backward governments and countries. So the Alliance, which is still around, uh, was a very important organization over the last century and a half, but it was founded in large measure because of this crisis, the Mortara crisis, that here Jews in beleaguered places are being pushed around and bad things are happening to them. We need to have an organized effort to protect them. So he goes, and while he's there, they tell him, listen, we're willing to fund and provide logistics for a re-kidnapping or an unkidnapping. We'll take the boy back. We'll disguise ourselves as, as Galachim, go into Rome and grab the kid and get out of there. Uh, but the conspiracy was never carried out because one of the conspirators died. Whatever it is, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. Uh, Edgardo corresponded with his parents a few times over the, the, the latter half of the 1860s. At this point, he's a teenager, an older teenager. Um, and then 1870 comes around and uh, tumult in, in, in Italy again. What happens in 1870? This is the demise of the Papal States. 
that they had been shr- they they were shrunk in 1859, and Italy went a, a large way towards unification. But the final unification happens with the conquest of Rome in 1870. So soldiers are pouring on into Rome, into the into the Vatican, and Edgardo's older brother is a soldier in the Italian army and finds his brother in one of the convents, in one of these, uh, the, the, the hostels in, in, in the Vatican. And he says, come home with us. So it was an unpleasant encounter because the older brother wanted Edgardo to come back to Judaism. Edgardo wanted the older brother to become a goy, to become a, a, a Catholic. And they parted ways, like basically they couldn't, they couldn't make their peace. But Edgardo was caught off guard. All of a sudden, he sees his brother in a military uniform uh, coming to his dorm room. So when, when the dust was settled, young Mortara says to the authorities, listen, I'm 19 years old. I can make my own decisions. I'm not interested in going back to my family, despite the fact that for a decade he was a famous individual having been kidnapped. Uh, and so he runs away. He flees to Austria. Then he goes to France in 1872 was ordained as a priest at the age of 21. In 1873, the Pope gave him special dispensation because it was too young of an age. You weren't, uh, I think, 24 was the age at which you could be ordained. They gave him like a early smicha, lahavdil, and they gave him a 7,000 lira uh, pension uh, trust fund to support himself because the Pope really loved the kid. Well, what happens next? Uh, Edgardo becomes a great preacher. He speaks six different languages, can give drushes in six different languages. And he was very sought after because it's a feel-good story. Feel good if you're a Christian. Feel bad if you're a Jew. But he was he was a happy as a Christian. And he told his story, his spiel, like a motivational speaker. And they, he, got, he got gigs all over, the, all over the Europe. So Mamolo died in 1871. Unfortunately for him, he had a lot of tourists in life. And listen to this one. Uh, a few years after his son was kidnapped, Mamolo, the father, was arrested for murder and convicted uh, for defenestration. You know what that means? Throwing somebody out a window. Uh, and a servant girl was thrown out of a window and he was accused and convicted. It was later overturned on appeal, but he spent seven months in jail. I don't know whether he really did it or he didn't do it, but obviously he had a lot of trouble in life from these servant girls. Um, okay, so now Pius the Ninth died in 1878. Mariana, the mother, had a reunion with her son that very year in 1878. She died in 1890. There were reports in the press that on her deathbed, she did what? Converted, Converted to Catholicism. However, Edgardo himself, the priest, said... As much as I would have wanted that to be true, it never happened. It never happened. Now, do you believe him? Yeah, yeah. I believe him. I believe him. Okay. So, Edgardo returned to Italy for the first time in 20 years, in 1891. He had avoided the country because of bad memories and didn't want to get into, you know, open up old wounds. But in 1891, he came back. And he had a meeting with some of his siblings. And he made shalom with a few but not all of the siblings. How many there were uh, eight siblings altogether, but some of them died in infancy. I think there were six total who lived into adulthood. So he, um, he lived the later years of his life in Belgium. And he died on March 11th, 1940, at the age of 88, three months before the Nazi takeover of Belgium. Had he lived a few more months, he could have been deported. He would have been killed as a Jew. So uh, Mortara, I, I find, you know, I, I, my father and I have this running conversation over the years of name people who outlived their fame. Uh, you could think of people who were once famous. And I don't mean athletes who were famous because they're young and they're in their 20s. But I mean, like historical personalities who were big when they were in their 30s, their 40s, their 50s, or even as a child. And then 100 years later, they're still alive. Well, that guy's still alive. Can you believe it? You know, like Churchill lived a long time or, or uh, Herbert Hoover lived a long, long time, was, was alive way later after his presidency. I mean, Jimmy Carter also, but he, he stays in the news. But Edgardo Mortar was alive in 1940, for crying out loud. So D- David Kurtzer, uh, who wrote the authoritative book on this subject, 
said that the Mortara case was the prime motivator for the French to change their course on Italian, unific Italian unification. And this changed the course of European history and ecclesiastical history. That here, the kidnapping of a little Jewish boy could mean the difference between the papal states and not the papal states and unification of a major European power. But that's the way it was. But do you think the unification was instrumental? The unification was hastened by the... Uh, the derision that everyone had for, uh, for for Pope Pius and the fact that certain key figures, heads of state in Europe, said, we can't support this guy anymore. It's an anachronism that a, an ecclesiastical leader has temporal control over the lives of thousands and thousands of people, that that shouldn't be anymore. And maybe that made sense a thousand years ago, but it doesn't make sense in modern Europe. And therefore, it's coming to an end. Um, so, so the last point I would just like to make for tonight is that the establishment of um, defense organizations was an important step forward in Jewish history. Not just the history of anti-Semitism, but the Jewish history in America in 1859, also in response to the, the Mortara case, was the establishment of the Board of Delegates of American Israelites. Okay, which brought together prominent Jews from the major uh, American cities that had Jewish population. And that group would be instrumental in the eventual establishment of the Union of American Hebrew Congregations in 1873. So these organizations are important because with the secularization of modern Jewry, you're not going to have everybody aligned on religious lines, on theological lines. You're not going to have one chief rabbi who, who, who has the allegiance of all Jews or one synagogal union with the allegiance of all Jews. But secular Jewish aims of defense can command a wide consensus. Even the pious Orthodox and the radical reform probably can align themselves on these sorts of issues and it was anti-Semitic outbursts in specific cases in the 19th century that brought these things about. Next week, which is Erev Tanis Esther, we're going to finally get to Wilhelm Marr. No, the beginning of anti-Semitism, the term, and the person who popularizes the term. And we'll eventually see how German Jewry, like Italian Jewry, French Jewry, has to now react to an, a, a growing movement that opposes their rights. So Wilhelm Marr, next week. What year? 1870s. 1870s. Yeah, getting. Yes, mindful of the fact that technology allowed these stories to quickly travel thousands of miles. Right, yeah. I would imagine the same story, 800 years earlier, would have remained. For the most quiet, they would have made this uh, uh, right. So that without, without modern technology, these stories would have made local stories, would have resulted in a greater number of deaths of Jews because there would be, there would have been no pushback from powerful Jews elsewhere, and we'd be recalling it as a a page in the book of the the, the lachrymose history of the Jewish people. Also, they came out the Jews. Yeah. Okay. Let me unmute people. One second. We'll have time for allow participants to unmute. Okay, if you want to unmute, we got time for one question. Rabbi, I have a question. You got it, Tina. Uh, actually, it's also a clarification. Okay. You said that in Syria, the Pasha was in control; the Muslims were in control. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but you also have a very strong presence of the Catholics. You have Catholics, you have certain types of Eastern Orthodox, and there were even Protestant missionaries too. Okay. So what happened to that guy, that Catholic, who started it all, you know, started the... the uh, more Thomas was dead. He was never seen again. The, the, the person who was in that, um, the... the um, the Catholic delegation, the one who made the accusation. Oh, so the, the French consul, he, he lived a, he lived his life and, and had a career as a diplomat. Uh, I don't know much about him, but uh, you know, nothing bad happened to him. Could, even though what, what, he, what he did was so terrible and, and people came to see how terrible it was, 
But that doesn't mean he did, that he lost his career. And he said, okay, so I just wonder, I wonder if the subtext of all this is, is that maybe the Catholics uh, uh, wanted to control the um, Syria and was challenging yeah. the, the uh the control by the the Muslims, and this is okay. Just so it's head. certainly the case that the French wanted significant influence and had significant influence over Syria, especially the Lebanese portion of Syria, the coastal area, which had a strong Maronite population, um, and their influence remained even into the 20th century, uh, at least in Lebanon. Um, so this nobody was this n- nobody was looking to take over the Ottoman lands at that time just yet. But they would in the early 20th century when the Ottoman Empire was the dying man of uh, Europe. And then the French and the British gobbled it all up with the French taking the northern portions, which became France and uh, uh, Syria and Lebanon, and the British taking Jordan and Palestine. Right. So you could say almost that this is a dress rehearsal. It's, it's an era when the consuls had outsized influence over local policy. It was true in Jerusalem, too, that there, there were these... Uh, uh, delegations that controlled the destiny of their citizens who were living in the Middle East. Remember, there were a lot of pilgrims and people who were uh, who went on uh, permanent uh, permanently to to live in the Holy Land or in in, in the uh, in the Old World. And their their consul from their European home country looked out for them, looked after them, so that they were not uh, harmed. Okay. I'm just looking at it in a very broad way, you know, of, of what what this, the subtext of all this could be, okay. you know. All right, folks, a good night to one and all. See you next week. Night. Thank you.